Well, today I want to ask the question, what on earth is God doing? Uh, Whether it's natural disasters, whether it's just world events, or just the everyday disasters of your life, what on earth is God doing? Uh, We believe that God's in charge of the world. We believe that he's working all things for good, that he is infinitely wise and powerful and loving. But if we're honest, often it doesn't seem like that. Life so often seems out of control. Why does God allow things to happen the way they do? Now maybe that's a theoretical question for you. Uh, Perhaps life for you is going okay. But you're interested in a general sense about why God allows suffering. Uh, Or maybe for you, you're asking it from a different place. Maybe at the moment it's an intensely personal and painful question. Perhaps for you at the moment, life is a mess. Perhaps it's your health, or your marriage, or your children. Maybe it's your employment, or your housing, or your education. Or maybe it's a combination of those things. And you feel out of control. You plan and hope for one thing, you set your direction in one place, but it turns out completely differently, and it's a disaster. And you're wondering, what on earth is God doing? Well, I'm suggesting that this section of Judges reminds us that God is at work, even when things seem terrible, even when you can't see his hand because you're stuck in the middle of the mess. God is working the way uh, he always does. He's using events to draw us back to himself. Because in our independence, so often we think we know best. God is drawing us back to to loyalty and humility and trust because he loves us too much to let us go. Uh, This section of Judges, it describes uh, certain historical events in in three ways, from three perspectives or points of view. So firstly, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 to 23, gives us an overview or an introduction. It gives us the big picture, the general principles. It tells us what's happening behind the scenes uh, in the chapters that follow. Uh, We see what what God is doing and we also see why he's doing what he's doing. Uh, So let's have a look at that, chapter 2 verses uh, from verse 10. After that whole generation, uh, the generation of Joshua, had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger. And then in this section we see a general pattern that will be repeated again and again through the book of Judges. So verse 14, God is angry. He hands them over to foreign nations who rule them. And then verse 15, the people are in great distress. They're suffering. Then verse 16, God raises up judges who save them from those foreign enemies. Why? Because verse 18 says, he hears their groaning and he has compassion on them. But it's not actually repentance. They're just complaining. And God has mercy on them anyway. There's no long-term change. The peace only lasts as long as the judge lives. Well, then verse 19, the cycle begins all over again. 
Uh, when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. And God is angry with them. But then, from verse 20, we see something of God's reasons. What God is doing behind the scenes. We see the big picture. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive them out, uh, drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. So what on earth is God doing? He's actually using the nations to test his people, to discipline and to shape them, to see whether they will trust him, whether they'll remain loyal. And so the tough times Israel is experiencing, it's not because the nations are too strong for God. It's not that he's abandoned his people. He's got a plan. He's got a plan. Well, that's section one. That's the, the big picture uh, the general principles that we're going to see worked out in a range of different ways as different judges are raised up. Well, the second section, chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, jump down to that and we're introduced to the first judge. Uh, his name's Othniel. I think what's happening here is that Othniel is the paradigm. Othniel is the, the model. He's the simple example that will show the pattern that will be expanded on or... Um, shown to, to ha how it works in practice. If you like, he's the theory that will then be expanded in practice. So just notice with uh, Othniel uh, how easy it is to see this pattern. Chapter 3, verse 7, Israel does evil. Chapter 3, verse 8, God is angry and hands them over to Aram Naharaim. Uh, but verse 9, they cry out to God who raised up Othniel, who saved the people. Verse 10 gives us the bare details of how the saving happens. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war and the Lord gave the king into his hands. And verse 11, the land had peace until Othniel died. Now that's it. And, and we think, hmm, I wonder how, I wonder what, I wonder when, uh, we don't know. I think it's meant to be that short and concise so that we can notice the points. This is the dot point outline. So we won't get distracted by the interesting personal details. There's nothing about his character, the size of his army, the strategy of his victory. So from the first section we know why God is doing things, because he's testing the loyalty of his people. This second section shows us the plan, uh, how that plan works in practice in a dot point outline. Then finally, from verse 12 to 30, we get to the interesting story. We get to Ehud. Uh, that's, this is real life. It's the most interesting in terms of personal detail, but it's messy. It's confusing. And so perhaps it's not so clear what the point is. Perhaps it's not so clear how God is at work. So this is not the story that helps us to make sense of what on earth God is doing. And so we need the other two points of view to help us see things from God's perspective. Now, I think that is often the way it is in our lives. There are messy details and choices in our lives. We're like this third description, and we struggle to see God's hand and what he's doing. We, we need to be able to step back and see the big picture over our lives. 
but before we get into Ehud, perhaps it's helpful to think about those three points of view uh, like this. So uh, imagine life was a football game. You know, maybe your life is a little bit like a football game, but imagine it's a football game. Uh, and this first section that we've just read in Chapter 2, it's, it's like the coach's view. Uh, the coach sits up in the coach's box high up in the grandstand and he can see the whole field. Uh, he can see how this thing over here affects this thing over here. But he's got this plan for how the game will unfold, but it's in his head, and so he has to get the plan into action. He's got to put it on a whiteboard and explain it to the people. And the whiteboard is the model of how the game will be played, how life will unfold. Uh, and so the whiteboard shows in a simple form where the players are supposed to be and the strategy for the game. That's like the second section with Othniel, uh, giving us the bare details, the simple example. But then there's the game itself. Uh, the game, it's messy and it's confusing and it's, you're bumped around and it's difficult to see the, the plan. It's difficult to see what the coach is trying to do. That's like the story of Ehud. It's like our lives. It's hard to see the pattern, it's hard to see the, uh, the plan. Uh, what we need to do when we're, in the, when we're in the middle of the game is to step off the field and look at things from the coach's box, uh, to look at the big picture, to see how what you are doing is part of something bigger and how the coach is at work, working his plan out. So, with those tools in place about what God is doing, let's turn our attention to the story of Ehud. Chapter 3, verse 12, it's the same cycle as before. Uh, Israel does evil. God raises up Eglon of Moab. Together with a couple of allies, he conquers the city of Palms, another name for Jericho, and he rules, verse 14, for 18 long years. At which point, verse 15, Israel cries out and moves God to action again. And so he raises up another deliverer, uh, Ehud. Our version says he's left-handed, but in uh, the original language, it's literally a man with a limited or a crushed right hand. So it's not that he's particularly good with his left, it's just that he's particularly bad with his right, uh, the hand that you would normally carry a sword or a spear with. Uh, which is ironic, seeing he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which literally means son of my right hand. But here he is, someone who can't use his right hand. It seems a strange choice for God to raise him as a deliverer. Speaking of left and right hands, uh, in the movie The Princess Bride, there's uh, one of my favourite scenes is where the hero Wesley, the dread pirate Roberts, is having a duel with the master Spanish swordsman Inigo Montoya. It's an amazing sword fight. Back and forth they go across the top of the cliff. Uh, and it starts to look like Wesley's getting the upper hand. But as they're fighting back and forth, Inigo Montoya gets a smile on his face and he says to Wesley, I know something you don't know. I'm not left-handed. And he switches the sword to his right hand and he keeps fighting even better than before. But instead of achieving a significant advantage, he's met with this reply from Wesley, neither am I. And he swaps hands and then the fight just escalates to a whole new level. And it's only at that moment that you realise the whole fight previously had been with them both using their left hands. 
But that's not real life. In real life, people who are restricted in the use of their right hand are not much good at sword fights. And so Ehud is a surprising choice. We wonder, what on earth is God doing? This is not the type of mighty warrior we would expect. He seems weak and limited. The Israelites seem to recognise it. They don't expect this man with a withered right hand to deliver them. They don't bother raising an army to be led by him. What they do, second half of verse 15, is they send him as the messenger boy. They give him the tribute to take to Eglon. It's probably food, grain from the harvest. But Ehud is more handy, if you'll excuse the pun, than the Israelites think. He's going to be not a delivery boy, but a deliverer. He may not be a great swordsman, but he'll be God's rescuer in a surprising way. He gets busy making his own special tribute for Eglon, verse 16. A double-edged sword, a foot and a half long, he straps it to his right thigh under his clothing. And with his custom-made sword, our unlikely deliverer sets out on his mission to Eglon. In verse 17, we find out he's very fat. Uh, Ehud, as part of Israel's delegation, is delivering food to the very fat Eglon. Israel goes hungry while their enemy gets fatter. This is the ultimate insult to Israel. But there's also irony, even humour, from the author. The author is saying, don't take this Eglon too seriously. He may sound powerful and he may sound frightening, but he's only human. He can't even control his weight. And he doesn't seem to be too bright either. Ehud is way too quick for him. Verse 19, Ehud uh, leaves, he makes it as far as the idols of Gilgal and he sends the rest of the delegation home, perhaps uh, seeing them to safety before he does the dangerous thing. He heads back to Eglon with his short sword strapped to his right thigh. The bodyguards miss it when they search him and he announces to the king, I've got a secret message for you. Well, what, what a great line. It, it's, it's so ambiguous. Sure, Ehud's got a message for Eglon, but not what he's expecting. He's got a sharp, two-edged metal message. Uh, he's giving Eglon a hint, but Eglon has no idea. He's too dull to notice. He plays straight into Eglon's hands. Uh, the idea of a secret intrigues him, so he even sends the guards away. Then verse 20, Ehud comes close, he whispers in his ear, I have a message from God for you. And as Eglon leans in close to hear it, he comes into striking distance of the short sword. Uh, He reaches with his left hand, draws the sword from his right thigh and plunges it into his belly. It's a great moment, this powerful pagan king, destroyed, completely humiliated by God's unlikely deliverer. Half a man wielding half a sword. Now, you can't miss it. The action slows right down. There's this blow-by-blow description of exactly what happens to the sword. Verse 22, the handle sinks in after the blade, which comes out his back. Ehud doesn't pull the sword out, and the fat closes in over it. I hope you didn't have too much breakfast this morning. But it leaves you in no doubt, Eglon comes to a sticky end. This scary enemy, this powerful king who's oppressing God's people, who even joins together with other kings to oppress God's people. He, he ends up a laughingstock, destroyed but also humiliated, made to look a fool. 
Verse 23, Ehud locks the doors from the inside and he sneaks away over the balcony. But the humiliation's not over yet. Verse 24, our attention turns to the servants who've been waiting anxiously outside the locked doors. Everything's so quiet, they're sort of putting their ear up to the door saying, what's wrong? I don't know, should we go in? I don't know. And they say he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. And they wait to the point of embarrassment before someone goes off and finds a key and they open the door and they find their king on the floor dead. Meanwhile, Ehud has made his escape. This enemy is so incompetent, we we laugh. And then when the rest of the Israelites join in the fight, they have no problem defeating all of Eglon's army. And not a man escapes. This imposing king, his followers, his allies who've ruled Israel for 18 years, come to a humiliating end. As scary, as invincible as they may have seemed, they're no match for God, who defeats them easily with a one-armed man. Now that's the point of the humour. Whatever powerful, imposing forces of evil are ruling, they're nothing when God is at work. Now, there's a sense in which all of God's enemies are just like Eglon, including the enemies and the forces and the trials that you're facing. They don't stand a chance. They all face humiliating defeat. Now, that's what Psalm 2 is about. Psalm 2 talks about the kings and the nations who who gather together and and rage, rage against God. They think that by gathering together they're going to somehow defeat God. But God's response is the same as what he did with Eglon. Psalm 2 verse 4 says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Game over. The kings and the rulers of the earth who oppose God, they're no more a threat than Eglon was. They don't stand a chance. Now Psalm 2 is looking forward to, beyond David, beyond all of the kings of Israel, it's looking forward to Jesus, to God's son, who God installs as his king on the cross. It's at the cross where God and his king defeat all his enemies. It's at the cross where God scoffs at his enemies, where God rebukes them in his anger, where he deals with sin and death by killing his own son. Now the cross is an even more unlikely place to find rescue than at the hands of a one-handed Ehud. A man dying on a cross brings victory. It, It seems nonsense. But just like Ehud, that's where God wins his decisive victory. That's where weakness is turned into a strength to bring about God's purposes, just as it was with Ehud. Now that's the way it works with Jesus. God brings about a victory through weakness. But it also works that way for us. We're not Jesus, but but perhaps we're a little like Ehud, with a weak right hand. Perhaps God can even use us to bring about his purposes in some special way. 
Perhaps rather than you having a strong right hand, you feel like you've got a crushed right hand, that perhaps you're feeling pretty weak or beaten down. Perhaps there are mistakes and failures and disappointments in your life. Everyone else seems to have the gifts or got the opportunities or seen the fruit in their life. But God is the ultimate craftsman. He can make something amazing out of weak and broken and blunt instruments. He's working on you and perhaps he's working through you and in you as well and with you. God is actually using the trials and the struggles in your life to test you, just as he did with Israel, to shape you and to teach you. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul puts it like this. Paul says, somewhat amazingly, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. What an amazing response that would be for you to be able to do that. Not just to rejoice when your enemies are defeated but to rejoice in your sufferings. Because in your sufferings, you can recognise the disciplining hand of your loving Heavenly Father, who is using those sufferings and those trials to test you, just like he did with Israel and the nations. God is using those trials to build something in you, to build resilience and perseverance and hope to make you stronger and better than you were before them. And what you might just find is that he begins to work with you as well as in you. You may just begin to find that he can use you to build up others with the lessons that you've learned. You see, that's what genuine, vulnerable relationships with one another is all about here at church. That's what we encourage in our home groups over morning tea. We encourage you to share with one another what God is doing in your life. The Apostle Paul recognised God's hand in all the struggles that he endured. He recognised that God was using them to sharpen him so that he could be an instrument who could comfort other people. Let me read a little of 2 Corinthians 1, where once again Paul rejoices in the trials he suffers. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ, our comfort overflows. Do you see how that works? When, when, when you are shaped by the trials God brings your way, you learn things and you grow and you're able to pass on those lessons to others. Our comfort overflows. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. So what on earth is God doing? Well, he's doing what he's always doing. 
He's using weak and blunt and broken vessels. He finds particular joy in using weak, small, old, dusty vessels. He always has. Hundred-year-old Abraham fathering children. Gideon and his cut-down, cut-down, cut-down army of 300. David, the youngest brother of the family. Paul, the weak, bumbling public speaker. Ehud, the left-handed assassin. God loves to use people like that because those are the people who've been shaped by their trials to trust him. May God be doing those things in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, uh, we we don't know what others are going through around us. Uh, We pray, we think especially of those who are really struggling with uh, the trials that you are bringing their way. Uh, May they look to you. May they learn what it means to to recognise your good hand in those trials. Uh, May they trust you. May they even begin to rejoice as they see you at work. And might all of us, Lord, be able to uh, just flow, just pass on the comfort that we have experienced uh, from you as we've suffered to those around us. Make us a, a group of people who are sharing and building one another up as we speak truth to each other, uh, as we encourage each other. We pray these things for Jesus' honour and glory. Amen.